0: The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org.
1: My book is a family memoir. We look at five generations of the Lin family, but in doing so, you'll really get a sense of Chinese history going back to like the mid-1800s. So let's start with 1972. The nice thing about talking to a group like this and not like the high school where I just gave an assembly is that I don't really have to explain what the Cultural Revolution was or what, what happened in 1972. So we all know that's when Nixon began the process of opening China. Now for my family, that had a real impact. So my father, Paul Lin, was part of the great diaspora of Chinese who left China in 1949. Dad went to St. John's University. He was a doctor. He came to the United States uh, to continue his medical training. And during those years, the only way dad could communicate with his family who stayed behind in China, which would have been his father and his siblings, was through letters. So my grandfather would write to us every month, and my mother would write back to him. My grandfather spoke flawless English, because from the age of 10 he was schooled by, by missionaries from, from Britain. Um, so every month, Lin Pucci would write to us, but we had to assume that every letter we sent to them and every letter they sent to us would have been read by the authorities. So we had to keep it light and happy. Um, 1972, though, after Nixon went to China, we were able to place a phone call to Shanghai So for the first time in years, my father was able to talk to his father on the phone. And I remember that day, we were all sitting in his office and passing the phone around, and we all said hello to my grandfather. And it was the only time I heard his voice. Uh, A few months after that phone call, my grandfather passed away. So... That was the beginning of the opening of China. I'm sorry,
2: can you just go, Were those all your siblings? Yes, from a
1: large family. I come from a large family. <laughs> the other side is Italian. Uh, my mother, it, my, this is my grandmother, a classic Italian Nona. and this is my mother, who is an Italian American nurse from Camden, New Jersey. She met my father on the surgical ward of Temple Hospital, and the rest is history. Oh. Actually, the rest is all of us. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, 1978, Carter renews full diplomatic relations with China, and it became very easy for families like ours to get a visa to travel. So my dad was anxious to go back home. He wanted to see his sister and his brother who stayed behind. His parents by them were, had passed away. So in June of 1979, almost 30 years to the day that he left China, he took us back. And as I tell, again, the young people when I give talks at universities or, or high schools, I'm very proud of that photograph because it's the precise moment where dad met his sister in the airport, the old Hong Airport in Shanghai, and he was so happy to see her, and it's in focus. The f-stop is right, the speed is right, and you know, it wasn't one of these points and shoots. So, so dad and, and Martha were so happy to see each other I was at the time a, a senior at Duquesne University, there's some young ladies from Pittsburgh, my Pittsburgh fans are over there, <laughs> and um, I was a journalism student, I wanted to be a reporter and I was meeting cousins who until then had only been faces and photographs. And my father, you know, his family home was in the international settlement, Zhao Jiao Road if anyone's familiar with Shanghai. And so we were staying in his family home with his relatives, so that's his brother, And so. The first hours of this family reunion were so joyful. And I remember going to bed that first night thinking, this is just going to be a wonderful two weeks for my father. I'm so happy for him. My first morning in Shanghai was different. And I will never forget the moment where it was you know, 6 AM. I'm standing on the balcony of the second floor, looking out into the lane, listening to the bells of the bikes. And I heard my father coming down the steps, and I will never forget the look on his face because it was a combination of, of shock, sadness, despair. Uh, and he said to me, he said, my God, this is so depressing. And what happened was the night before, after we went to bed, he stayed up the whole night, and an uncle of his pulled him aside and said to him, do you have any idea what happened to us since you've been gone? And the truth of the matter is, we were clueless. Like, Even though my grandfather had been sending these monthly letters, he never explained what was happening to the family. And even though we knew what was happening in China with the Cultural Revolution, we didn't know how the politics of the period were playing out within the family home. And what did we find out? Well, we found out, my father found out through Uncle George, that his mother, Chen, uh, was regularly uh, interrogated by the Public Security Bureau. She was beaten. She had to confess to her neighbors every day on a daily basis for years. My grandfather was accused of being an American spy. An uncle of mine was detained in his work unit for six months and hung up by his his fingers. A cousin of mine who was a concert pianist, they, they tried to break her hands. There was a day early in the Cultural Revolution, August 1966, where three groups of Red Guards came to the family home and ransacked it. Took away possessions, took away furniture, destroyed my my, uh, cousin's music, took away her piano. These are stories that I'm sure you've all heard. But for my father, it was the first time he had heard it. And the thing that Uncle George told him was that the reason the family had many strikes against them. They were westernized. They had relatives in America. Uh, they, they were capitalists in the family tree. But the real black mark against the family was the man on the left, and his name was Watchman Nee. Now, Watchman Nee was one of the most influential religious leaders of the 20th century in China. And Watchman Nee, uh, after 49, was arrested and imprisoned for 20 years and declared uh, a counter-revolutionary so he was an enemy of the people. And during the Cultural Revolution, it was guilt by association. So if your uncle, if your brother was a counter-revolutionary, you were a counter-revolutionary. So that's really uh, what led to all the problems for the family. Now when we got home to Philadelphia in 1979, my father, who's, who's a doctor, and maybe it's his medical training or his scientific mind, but he kind of took what he learned you know, from his uncle, put it in a box, and kind of put it far away. He wasn't going to go back in history. He couldn't undo the past. His mother had passed away. He couldn't help her. So he moved on. And I was like a young reporter. And I had the, the opposite reaction, which is I couldn't let go of this. I needed to really drill down. So luckily for me, I was in the right profession. I was a reporter, I worked for the Inquirer in, in China for four years, um, uprooted my family and took them you know, to live in Beijing from 96 uh, to 99, and I began mining the family story and writing about it. But it seemed like for every answer there was another question. You know, I tell people when I give talks that being a reporter is like being a three-year-old. And you're always asking why right. <laughs> and, and like like why was there trouble for the family during the Cultural Revolution well it was largely because of Watchman need well why was Watchman me considered an enemy of the people and then why and so I it, every time I, I did answer a question though I kept getting pushed further and further into the past and then a looming question became well, who was the, what made my family uh, distinctive was the fact that they were Christians, going back five generations. So that really stopped me in my tracks because then I asked myself, well, who was the first? Mm-hmm. So thus begins my book, and and we start in the province of Fujian. Uh, my family is from a little town, uh, a little village, fishing village called Ardu, right here. And so I I went to the Lin Ancestral Hall, and I began the process of uncovering the family past. And I found out that the first convert was just a fisherman, a peasant, who lived in Ardu. And he went to work for the missionaries as a cook. And this is our page from our genealogical records. It's called a And many families in China have these records stored at their ancestral hall. And this is my branch of the family. So I discovered that the first convert was a character I call Old Lin in the book, just for simplicity's sake. And he went to Fucho. he walked to Fucho uh, and he went to work for the missionaries in Fucho. For this man, Archdeacon Wolfe, who was a British missionary, an Anglican missionary, and Fucho was very much a hub of missionary activity because it was one of the original port cities that was forced to open after the Opium War. The fisherman had a, had a son, who was uh, an only son, Lin Dao An, who was trained to be a doctor. Now back then they didn't have a medical school per se, but there was a British medical missionary, Dr. Birdwood Von Summeren Taylor. I just love that name, I have to say the whole thing. And Dr. Taylor basically mentored my grandfather, great-grandfather, in, to be a medical assistant basically. And what's interesting about their story is that they were then working for a small hospital in a city, a town back then called Funing. Today it's called Shapu. And in this small town, in this hospital where Dr. Taylor and my, my great grandfather were working, two thirds of the patients were opium addicts. Now, think about that two-thirds of the patients were opium addicts. This is the legacy of the opium war and it was a real problem for the missionaries because the Chinese you know when the Anglicans first arrived in Fuzhou, they didn't convert anyone for 10 years and they had a real problem kind of distinguishing themselves from from uh, the opium traders. I mean the Chinese looked at them and and it, I found this great quote in one document or one uh, something I was reading where it said, you kill us with your opium, and then you try to save us with your Bible? Which is it? So anyway, this is Dr. Lin. And I just want to point out this little story uh, here that was in a, a missionary magazine called The Church Missionary Gleaner. And I, I wanted to, to include this in, in the talk. I just got this last week. And there was a scholar in Fujian province who just reached out to me, because I have a, a, a website for my book, And he said, I was looking, doing research, reading the Church Missionary Gleaner, and I recognized a story about your great grandfather, so I thought I'd send it to you. Now, by the way, the spelling is L-A-N-G because that's the local dialect, and, and so that's how it would have been. But what's amazing about this one paragraph is, it took me years to piece together this <laughs> this kind of biography and he sent it to me and it was like all right there. The bad thing is, you know, it took me years to know all of this. The good thing is I got it. I got it right, you know, through deduction uh, and, and just my digging. But anyway, the um, the doctor was introduced to a the doctor was introduced to a teacher in the town of Funei. And the teacher was my great grandmother. Now she was the youngest daughter of a farm family from the mountains of Fujian province. And if you were a daughter born to a farm family in the late 19th century in China, you were lucky, your future would have been very limited. You were lucky, in fact, to have any future because girls you know, uh, were not as favored as boys. So the missionaries kind of played matchmaker, and they introduced the, the teacher to the doctor, and they married. They had 10 children. The oldest of whom was my grandfather. Um, so my grandfather, as I mentioned, from the age of 10, went to missionary schools in Fuzhou. Uh, and he you know, graduated from Trinity College in Fuzhou. They call it college, but it's really like a high school here. And the the missionaries sent him to St. John's University in Shanghai to continue his education. Um, St. John's was run by the Episcopal missionaries from the United States. Now, the the Protestant missionaries knew that they had a problem in China, that it was viewed as a foreign religion, and unless they, they cultivated Chinese talent, had Chinese clerics, that the religion would just not, uh, you know, it would die away. It wouldn't take root. So they really wanted Chinese students to continue their education. So in 1918, my grandfather Lin Puchi went to Philadelphia, to the Episcopal Seminary in Philadelphia on a scholarship. He also enrolled at the University of Pennsylvania and studied uh, philosophy. So think about it. In the span of just two generations, we've gone from uneducated fishermen to Penn philosophy student, uh, graduate student. That's a pretty good jump and it was made possible because of the education that was introduced to China by the missionaries. So my grandfather was part of this generation that really wanted to learn from the West. And he had every intention of spending like 10 years in the United States, getting his PhD and then going back to China and helping to build the church there. But something happened. Two years into his stay in Philadelphia, he got a telegram from home, from his father, saying, Your younger brother wants to get married, but before he can get married, you have to be married because you're the oldest. So come home, I've found someone for you to marry. (laughs) And so for my grandfather, it created this great dilemma. Like, would he be an obedient Confucian son, or would he be a modern man, you know, you know, learning everything he can from the West and and then returning to To China, So we all know how that ends. He got married, and neither of them were thrilled about the marriage because my grandmother was 18. She hardly knew him, and she was going to a missionary school in Shanghai at the time. She was summoned home for this marriage, and, you know, she had to put her dreams aside. So neither of them, despite the smiles on their face, were happy about that. Now, my my grandfather, by marrying into the Ni family, then became the brother-in-law of Watchman Ni. Who is Watchman Lee? Watchman Lee is also from Fuzhou. He's the younger brother of my grandmother. Had a you know, grew up in Fuzhou, went to Trinity College, the same high school as my grandfather, was kind of a you know, a casual Christian, but then in his twenties, he was awakened, he embraced his Christianity, he began studying the Bible, he was baptized by immersion in the Min River, and then began kind of a, a Christian life that was the antithesis of my grandfather. So my grandfather was this Anglican priest in Fuzhou and Watchman Nee spurned the denominational churches and wanted to kind of build a more Chinese uh, uh, way of practicing faith. And so Watchman Nee, again, like my grandfather, was schooled by the missionaries, so he was fluent. And he could read and write in English and he traveled the world and was invited to England, to Europe, to the United States, Canada, uh, in order to, to talk uh, you know, about his religious ideas. And, and he would practice his, he would, he would join like-minded Christians in houses. So this is how the house church movement started in China. So Watchman Nee, though, um, you know, in 1949, had about 80,000 followers around China. I asked my Aunt Martha, who went to his church, his assembly hall, I said, you know, tell me, like, why was he so charismatic? And Aunt Martha said it was really that he could describe, he could explain very complicated concepts regarding Christianity, regarding the Bible, in very simple language. And he was not a fire and brimstone type of preacher. He was someone who could just gather in rooms like this and speak to people. And Martha said that he, that he was a magnet, and people just were drawn to him. Um, and in in 1952, when he was arrested and then later tried, it wasn't so much for his ideas; it was more for his influence. So um, I'm going to switch a little, and this is why I wanted to write my book. Now I'd like to tell you kind of how I did it. I call this the alchemy of writing because you know when I decided like. I would say about 20 years ago to actually write a book. I I reached out to Aunt Martha and I said Martha tell me everything you know about the family and Martha sent me back 12 pages of loose leaf paper you know handwritten and she told me about you know the fishermen who went to work for the missionaries. She told me about her great grandfather, my great grandfather the doctor but it was only 12 pages so the alchemy is I turned that into about 300 pages, 100,000 words and this is how I did it. I mean, I began, the, this, this is very simple reporting 101. I walked in their shoes. So I went to see like the graves site of Dr. Lin in the mountains of, uh, of Fuzhou. Uh, you know, I went to the old, the village where old Lin came from to see what that was like. Um, with Lin Pucci, I, I, I made a pilgrimage to St. John's University, to the street in Philadelphia where he lived, And also to the church, the cathedral, uh, where he was the, the first dean when the Anglican church opened this in 1924. This picture, there's a story behind it. So in researching the family story, I did a lot of work in archives. And I went to the University of Pennsylvania, and I wanted to see his transcript. And when the archivist handed me my grandfather's transcript, which had all the classes he took and his grades, I literally gasped because his address was 901 Clinton Street. And the reason I guessed is when I moved back to Philadelphia after going to, to school in Pittsburgh, my first address with my husband was 920 Clinton Street. Oh. Oh so we lived goodness. on the same block.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> but you know, uh, my grandfather, as I said, was a prolific writer, and my mother had saved all of his letters. Mm-hmm. And even though he didn't tell us really what was happening to the family, He gave me a window into what their house was like, what their home life was like, what it looked like, what they ate, where they went on vacation. And the reason this was important is when I sat down to write my book, I'm no Joseph Lee. I'm not going to write a scholarly book. But I am a reporter and I know how to tell a story. And I wanted it to be narrative nonfiction. And the thing about narrative nonfiction is you can't make it up, nothing. But you want to bring the reader to a place, and I wanted them to, to know what it felt like to be a villager in Fujian province, what it felt like to live inside the family home, you know, house number 19, lane 170 on Zhaozhao Road. And my grandfather gave me that because he was telling me what the home life was like. So the the story the book spans 150 years and for the the most recent 75 years i really could build this narrative through oral <laughs> history and so from the time i came home in 1979 i began sitting down relatives and saying tell me your story so my father like you know when we got back to philadelphia i said dad tell me your history tell me what you remember about your childhood and i took out my cassette player you know which But was like this big and the cassettes were that big. And I just began recording conversations with dad that continued for years. And I began then sitting down with the other relatives, his sister and his brothers. His sister and brother were extremely reluctant to talk to me and really didn't open up for like 10 years. But what I found is that the cousins who were closer to me in age were really anxious to talk to me. Now, when I went to China, in 1979, uh, I couldn't speak any Chinese, and my my cousin Terry couldn't speak any English. When I went back in 1986, I still couldn't speak very much Chinese, and Terry was fluent. (coughs) And so she began really opening up to me, and I think the reason she was so anxious to talk is that she's part of the lost generation. So she was uh, 14 years old when the Cultural Revolution, she was 16 years old, that's her there, when she heated Mao's call and went to the countryside, working as a barefoot doctor for seven years, delivering babies when she was uh, you know, 16 years old. Uh, my, my Aunt Martha was an OBGYN in Shanghai, and before Terry went to the countryside, she had her working with the midwives. So Terry at 16 was delivering babies. And I began writing about Terry's life for the newspaper because she became my window into what was happening in China. And so, when I lived in, Ch- in China, Terry and I went back to the village where she had worked for seven years as a barefoot doctor. And it was a wonderful experience because they all remembered her. And they would come up to her and say, hey, you delivered my brother. Or, hey, do you remember me? I had that boil on my back that you lanced. And so, it was just uh, you know, a great way of describing, explaining to readers in Philadelphia what was happening in China was through the stories of people like Terry. So for the, fir- the, the, the first 75 years of the story though, from like the mid 1800s until like the 1930s, I really had to rely on missionaries a lot to tell me what was happening in the world in which my relatives were living. Now the, the book is very much from a Chinese perspective, but the missionaries were invaluable uh, for me understanding what was going on in their lives. And I'd like to give you just one example a story I unearthed: 1927 Northern Expedition. You know, communist nationalist coalition moving up from Guangzhou. You know, to unify China to defeat the warlords. They had no problem, uh, you know, taking over in Fuzhou. But there were there there were uh, there was a lot of anti foreign anti Christian uh, violence that came along with this Northern Expedition. So. Again, as I said, I relied on scholars to help me to understand. And I picked up a book by Ryan Dutch called Fuzhou Protestants and the Making of a Modern China. And I'm thinking, oh, this is good. This will help me. And I had this habit of starting a book by looking at the index. And usually there's a reference to Watchman Nee because he's so prominent. In this case, though, I found a reference to my grandfather, Lin Pu Chi. That's this pinyin spelling of his name. And I thought, oh my goodness, let's see what he has to say. And Ryan had one sentence. He said, the Chinese principal of an Anglican school, the Reverend Lin Puji, was capped and paraded through the streets, then denounced at a mass meeting. And I'm like, what? I don't know anything about this. So I called Ryan and I said, Ryan, point me to your primary sources. Where can I find out about it? And he pointed me to Ida Bell Lewis. Ida Bell Lewis was an American missionary in Fuzhou. She ran something called Huanan Women's College. This is what it looks like today. And so I went to the Yale Divinity School Archives, which is the repository of a lot of the missionary archives. And Ida Bell, like many women who were living and working in China, was writing home to her mother on a regular basis. You know, the women missionaries, I'm indebted to them because they would write home to mom and sister And they would describe what they were experiencing in a way that was different than the men, frankly. They would talk about kind of just the texture of life. In this case, Ida Bell was writing home to mom. This is a copy of her diary, her memoir. And she said, one morning, a teacher of the junior middle school came running to tell us that a communist mob was on the march again. They were about a mile away and had taken into custody a fine Anglican pastor. So now I'm really curious. And, again, being a reporter, I kind of approached this as a reporter would. And I was thinking, well, you know what? If Ida Bell noted this in her letter home to mom, it must have been a pretty big deal. So I'm wondering if other missionaries were also taking note of this. And I found multiple accounts in missionary magazines. And then it's like, again, the reporter, why, why, why? So then it's like, well, OK, if missionaries are, are recording what happened on this day in March in 1927, I wonder if the diplomats were also noting this. And so I went to the Foreign uh, Archives, the National Archives in England, and I looked at the Foreign Service Archives for, for Fucho, and I found the diplomatic report. That the dip- British diplomat in Fuzhou was writing to Beijing. And in that report, in describing this mob and how they seized an Anglican priest and the violence or potential for violence, this diplomat said that many of the people in the mob had pistols. So that's like, you know, a detail that a writer really craves. And so then I knew that, you know, there was the potential for violence there. Newspapers. Reuters ended up writing a story. I, I went to uh, looked at the North China Daily News in order to find that. Internal mission correspondence. So the, the Anglicans who were in Fuzhou were writing back to the home office in London and describing this. And I also looked at personal letters and diaries uh, in order to understand what was happening to my grandfather on this day. And, and he, I'll just read this quickly. This is Dateline Fuzhou. March 26, 1927, so communist fury at Fuzhou, student outbreak against Christianity, outrage on Chinese pastor. Serious anti-Christian agitation has been started here by communist students who held a meeting yesterday at which the speaker harangued the mob, urging them to overthrow Christianity. The students seized and bound a Chinese pastor and after placing a fool's cap on his head, created it through the foreign quarter past British and American mission buildings. So this is a big deal, and this becomes an important scene for me. But I was understanding what happened, but what I was lacking was what my grandfather was thinking. You know, again, narrative nonfiction, you can't make it up. So John Gowdy, who was an American working for Fujian Christian University, was writing to the home office in New York, and he wrote this about this incident. He said, they asked him, and him would be my grandfather, Lin Kuchi, they asked him if he was a Christian, to which he said yes. Then they said they would free him if he would renounce his faith, to which he replied, I will never renounce my faith. You may kill me if you want to. So suddenly I'm inside his head. And it's in quotes, so it's like, yes! (laughs) Um, But the real find was a, a tiny little book I found on the shelves of Princeton Theological Seminary. Twenty years in, in China. It was the memoir of this man, Reverend Packenham Walsh, who was an Irish missionary, and he has he was the one who started the school that my grandfather went to as a ten year old, and it became Trinity College Fuzhou, which was a very important uh, mission school in China. And Packenham Walsh, you know, I'll never forget the day I was in Princeton when I pulled it off the shelf and I opened it up and I found a picture of my grandfather. And Packenham Walsh had been his mentor, and in writing about his years in China, Pakenham Walsh was corresponding with my grandfather. They were writing letters back and forth, and in it, he said uh, that when an American offered help, Reverend Lin said, this was purely a Chinese affair, and he wished to fight it out himself. He began to pray in silence for the mob of students round about him, and from that moment on, he said, all fear left my heart. And he spoke out quietly and boldly that Christianity was not a foreign faith, but the completion of all that the great Chinese sages had looked forward to, and that he would never deny his lord and master. So finally, I'm inside his head. And what's really remarkable, I think, about this incident, this, this, this episode, which becomes a very important dramatic point in the, in the book, is no one in the family knew this no one in the family knew this story not my father not his sister no one so if i hadn't opened up the index and found one sentence this story would have been lost and the reason it's important this story is it really shows kind of the 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 faith of the chinese christians to put it simply because in 1949 when china became the people's republic of china there were many people who thought christianity would just kind of Wither away and die. They, that it was a foreign religion grafted onto Chinese society and would never flourish. And there were only four million Christians at the time, only three million Catholics, and only one million Protestants. When you think about it, you know, more than a hundred years of work, and they had only one million followers. So, what's stunning, though, and, and this is really a remarkable story, is that there are maybe a hundred million Chinese. Uh, hundred million Chinese Christians in China today. It's very hard to say precisely how many there are because there's no official count, and there are more people who practice outside the umbrella of the official church than inside of it. And there are some people, um, Professor uh, Fenggang Yang from Purdue University, for instance, who predict that by 2030, there could be about 230 million Christians in China, which would make give China the largest Christian population mm-hmm in the world. Um, so in, in, in reporting the last chapter of my book, I returned to Fucho, and I returned to the church where my grandfather was a priest, spoke to the pastor there, Pastor Son. And this is part of the official church. It's a registered three-self church. And I asked him, I said, Pastor Son, do you ever worry about like you know another crackdown on churches? And he said, it's impossible. There's just too many of us. And I went to a house church. This is an unofficial church in Fuzhou. And the people there were reading hymns, many of which were written by Watchman Nee. They still read the works of Watchman Nee. And it was very much flourishing. So what I discovered is that, you know, contrary to what people were predicting in 1949, the church was really alive and well and flourishing in China. So what happened to everyone? Uh, Watchman Nee uh, passed away in a labor camp in 1972. Thank you, Joseph. My grandparents, my grandmother passed away in 1971, and my grandfather passed away in 1973. And this is from that first trip, the catalyst that that launched this whole project. Um, Everyone there has immigrated, uh, either to the United States or to Australia. So that is my talk. And I would welcome any questions that you have. And thank you for being so patient and for listening. Thank you for a wonderful talk.
2: questions? Comments? No um, I want to be three-year-old. Who are you? I'm sorry. I'm Jan Barris with the National Committee on Western Relations. And I want to ask the first why question. Yes. So why did Fisherman Lynn, how did he know about the missionaries to walk? And why did he leave his fishing boat his Right.
1: Family? Right. So um, uh, Fisherman Lynn was from a small town called Ardu. Back then it was called Nitu, you know, names kind of change over the generations. But again, this is where uh, the missionaries helped me. So the Anglican missionaries um, actually had had several histories of of their work in Fujian province. And I was able to refer to those to find out that they actually did uh, work in this little village. I also found out that through my Aunt Martha that old Lin who was a fisherman, left this little village and walked for four days to get to Fucho. This is part of, like, family lore. For some reason, like, this always came up. Whenever Aunt Martha would talk about about her grandfather, she would always mention this fact. And she always said that he put him in his son, his baby son, in a basket and, and carried him to Fucho. So now this is where the detective in me comes in. So I know when that boy was born, 1871 or 1870, one of those years. So then I'm thinking, okay, why would someone leave their village and go to the city? Something would have pulled them, but something would have, may have also pushed them. Now, I know from Martha that he had converted, that he was a Christian. And I know that, that, that Deacon Wolfe and others had gone to this town to proselytize, So obviously, he heard the message and he embraced the religion. But was there anything pushing him? So that's when I go to the Anglican archives, you know, the Church Missionary Society archives, and I start like looking through uh, reports from 1870, you know, in Fucho. And I read this missionary letter back to London where the missionary in charge in Fucho writes to the Home Office. I'm standing on the edge of a volcano that's about to explode. <laughs> so there was this scare, this poison scare, where you know the the early missionaries were often confronted with with um, hostile crowds, and there were the scholars who didn't want them in Fuzhou. So there, in South China, you know there have been books that have been written about this. This there was a poison scare, and uh, there were there were many acts of violence against foreigners, particularly missionaries, because the rumor was that the missionaries were trying to poison people through salt. And so by reading the Anglican archives, I found like multiple, multiple accounts of, of violence happening in Fujian, which was kind of something that would have pushed someone. Um, also, you know, in, in talking to experts and trying to understand Christianity, especially among these early converts, you know, there, there was a disparaging phrase that early converts were rice Christians. So was my great-great-grandfather a rice Christian? Probably. I mean, it was work. He did find work. Was he a convert? Yes, according to, to my Aunt Martha, the historian. So, so I think there would have been a pull and a push that led him to leave his village. Because by leaving your village, you're giving up kind of your claim to any ancestral land. And Ardu is just this, you know, this coastal little village. There's not much to it. So he left that. You know, I also again read in the in the missionary accounts about there was someone who was killed in this little village. So a Christian, a Christian yeah. So there was violence against them.
2: And do you know? Did he take his wife with him? He took his baby. Yes. Yeah.
1: yeah. Right. But but again, that that image that Martha kept repeating every time I would sit down and talk to her about that period was him carrying his baby in a basket.
2: And sorry, the language. No, go ahead. But, so you think he in you. Maybe Aunt Martha. So, did he go just hoping that there would be work there, or the mission? The missionary said, "We have jobs available if you
1: come." And so, hard to hard to say. You know, I, I can I can make a deduction based on the evidence that that they would need people to help them, uh, and that he would have known that. But I can't say that with like you know I I didn't read that, but it was kind of a an educated. Inference. Yes?
2: Uh, I'm Bill Ironbrester, retired journalist.
1: Oh, yeah.
2: East West Center. Yeah. I,
1: did I meet you maybe at the East yeah. West Center? I was a Jefferson Fellow.
2: Yeah. I was there 71, 73, Yeah. That's a side discussion. But uh, I, I just wanted to double check. You, your family, your relatives who were in that picture, all,
1: all of them have left China? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, for Australia, we're, you know, um, my Aunt Martha's husband's family had gone and then to the United States.
2: And are they still Christians? Uh,
1: it's interesting. Um, my cousin Terry is not a practicing Christian because, as she once explained it to me, it was the cause of so much suffering mm-hmm. that she kind of turned off. Aunt Martha, the one, you know, my, my aunt, um, she, uh, you know, grew up. Going to the assembly hall of Watchman Ni nee in Shanghai. And so I I remember asking Martha just a few years ago when we were talking about kind of nineteen seventy-nine, that period, when we went to China in nineteen seventy-nine for the family reunion was the time where they actually announced that they were going to reopen churches. So many years later, you know, I'm talking to Martha and I said, Martha, so when they reopened the churches, did you immediately return? And she said, no. I said, really? She said, no. She waited until she got to Australia before she resumed attending the little flock in Australia. But she was, she was too uncertain. She wasn't willing to, to immediately return to open practice of her, of her faith. Yes?
2: Peggy Blumenthal from the Institute of International Education. So, since everybody and your family has left, do you have sources now in China that are telling you what's going on now in terms of Christian persecution or right. persecution? Right.
1: So, um, uh, you know, I lived there for four years and I, I went back a few times for the book. Um, okay.
2: What years did you live there?
1: Uh, 96 to 99. Um, and I have people like relatives mm-hmm. and others who have helped me. Mm-hmm. Uh, like when I went to Fuzhou, there were people there who were. Helping me, it's interesting because um, Watchman Nee was branded a counter-revolutionary, but there's a lot of research going on about him and his life in universities in China. Mm-hmm. So there's a center for Christian studies in in Fuzhou Normal University. Uh, so so there's a, a lot of interest, and and you can talk about the history of the church mm-hmm. uh, more readily than perhaps kind of the difficulties today. <laughs> right, yeah. Right anyone else
2: just just on that subject uh, a different part of Christianity but uh, just yesterday I think it was there are reports that the Catholic Church Mm -hmm. has um, asked two of its bishops to step down Mm -hmm. so that they can be replaced by Beijing approved bishops as opposed to bishops who have been approved by the vatican and it was a a vatican emissary who went and asked these two bishops to please um, retire so this is going to create a big um to be replaced 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 by by beijing (coughs) excuse me by beijing approved and this is part of a warming of relations perhaps between the Vatican, yes. Well and, and some people were looking at the Pope who was supposed to be you know,
1: perhaps opposed to this kind of thing. But it's um, that's interesting. So are are these bishops who are like the ones who are secretly yeah. yeah. Yeah.
2: Yes. So it's a it's a, a practical accommodation yeah. to, yes. and, and perhaps Joseph, you know about it, this. It, it is interesting. I think I, I think the I two case I think the two, uh, the two bishops, they are actually in the Chaozhou, speaking of Guangdong province. Mm. Uh, basically, I think the all, one is Guangdong. The other, yeah, I forget. Right? Yeah, I think one is actually in Guangdong. I think the I think the tension between the open church and also the um, the pro-Vatican, you know, uh, church in that region. I think I think the tension was always it has been there for for decades. And, and so, in a way, I think for the local Catholic community, they always have that kind of resistance. Uh, but surprisingly, this time, I think the order actually came from the Vatican. Yes. Uh, so I think it, it might actually create another way of schism. We, we don't mm-hmm. know yet. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Hi, I'm Doug Murray. I've been a member of the National Committee for a long time. <laughs> um, I'm curious if the YMCA
1: mm-hmm.
0: archives Played any role in your research?
1: Yeah, they were um, They're in Minnesota, the, the China archives. Right. Yeah, right. and you could look at them online. So yes, I did look at them uh, because uh, the YMCA in Fuzhou was very active in, <coughs> in public health, mm-hmm. and my great-grandfather was a doctor who was also very much involved in, in uh, public health in the city. So I referred to, I looked at them, uh, but my relatives were not aligned with the YMCA, which was its own kind of universe. But what's, what's wonderful, I, I love archives. I mean, I, I can just like get lost in an archive for weeks. And so the, the YMCA archives are really rich, and there are a lot of great photographs that I found from the YMCA uh, in Fuzhou.
0: I was moved to ask that question because one of the founders of the National Committee was the son of the head of the YMCA in Shanghai. Okay. Doke Barnett, a Doke. Oh, Barnett. yeah, sure, sure, yeah. And uh, we had the wonderful experience of attending a Christmas Eve service in the Rice Market Street Church in Beijing in 1972. Oh, wow. Um, wow. Uh, and Doke was there. Doing? It was a very emotional time for him.
1: So, since some of you are members of the National Committee, if I could just put in a plug for my current project, <laughs> uh, I'm doing a documentary about the legacy of the Philadelphia Orchestra in China. Which uh-huh. Doug accompanied to China dog. As, uh, <laughs> as the head of the National Committee. We spoke.
2: We did. Many years
1: ago. And I forgot. <laughs> yes. So that project is moving along. Good. Yeah. am interested in we, uh, the details. Yes. You of were eventually. there. Right, right, right. And I just. I just had coffee with Nick Platt. Oh, so uh, he had a beard then. That's why you didn't recognize (laughs) him. So that's that's a wonderful story too, because it's it kind of uses the orchestra as a way of talking about Mm -hmm. classical music, Mm -hmm. the future. Well, it's had a
0: profound impact in China.
1: Yes, it it has. What year? year Seventy-three. Seventy-three. Three. three. Three, Yeah.
2: June seventy-three. No, Hmm? September. 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 It was announced. Sorry, it was announced. (laughs) It was announced. Picky, picky, I know because I, 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 I worked. Doug hired me and his wife was sitting next to him to work at the committee, and me in 71 and Peggy in 74. Three. Three. <laughs> anyway, I, I don't think I've ever admitted this to you, Doug, but, but I remember this very clearly because um, what's her name from Newsweek? Faye. Faye Willie. Faye Willie. Who was a contact of ours, who was a journalist at. Um, Newsweek magazine, and who's the one who called Doug back in 1971 to tell him that the Chinese had just invited the ping-pong team, which was playing at an international table tennis tournament in Nagoya, Japan, had invited the American team, instead of going back directly to the United States, to stop off first in China on their way back, and Faye called Doug to tell him that one afternoon. In in April of seventy one and that's what got the committee involved and why we brought the ping pong team over here in nineteen seventy two. But why I remember <laughs> the the Philadelphia Orchestra yes, yes. is yes. that Faye called me and said, you know, I hear there's rumors that the Philadelphia Orchestra is going to China. Do you know about this? And I said, Oh yes, it's it's going to happen like in September. And the minute I hung up, I realized, I very quickly remember this, I said, oh my god, I wasn't supposed to uh, no tell no <laughs> anybody. I tell I've just told a reporter, and I'm going to get in so much trouble, and Doug's going to fire me. <laughs> <laughs> no
0: chance. And I was so fire me. that what happened.
2: Me, I can picture me hanging up the telephone. But in luckily,
1: there was no Twitter back then.
2: So yes. Did
1: you call her back and say yeah. that was off the record, I, I, or did you just pray? I, I, don't remember,
2: I just remember you panicked that I was going to be fired because I had told this reporter something I shouldn't have told
1: her. Well, Doug, you remember 73. The movie ends in May of 2017, where we went to film. Imagine this, right. the, the National Performing Arts Center in Beijing, the Big Egg. Mm. We have a Canadian conductor, an American orchestra, and a Chinese choir performing Beethoven's Ninth. So it was just wonderful awesome. It was just amazing. So, uh, you know, we use the orchestra as a way of talking about classical music, how it's evolving and how it's flourishing in China and struggling here in the States.
2: When is your documentary going scheduled?
1: for? Well, if you (laughs) write me a check now. (laughs) Um, Hopefully hopefully next year, like 2019, if we can finish the fundraising. We've done, we've made three trips to China to film the orchestra and they've given us uh, total access, you know, backstage and archival and so it's been it's been really uh, we're we're halfway there so
0: terrific getting back to the book for a moment you mentioned at the beginning of your talk your father's reaction Mm -hmm. the first overnight in 1979 and then you say he put it in a box and didn't talk about it again but I wonder how the two brothers who left and their descendants felt after discovering how their parents and siblings and their children suffered— mm-hmm. their lives were on such different
1: trajectories. Right. How
0: did they respond to this?
1: Um, it, well, it was disturbing for all of us, um, and for some of them, it it. <clears throat> It made them very angry, you know? Uh, why did this happen? Um, none of them seemed to dwell on it as much as I did. But, you know, now that it's finished the book, both my Chinese relatives and my American, Chinese-American relatives are, like, very glad that I did this. Uh, you know, it was revealing to them, too, some of the things that I found out. So, you know, it was for dad, it was just, I I just think he he couldn't deal with it. Like, he he really, you know, he compartmentalized it because that was the way he coped with it. Because he was really, it's, my father recently passed away and he suffered from dementia in the last two years of his life. And, And up until that point, I would, when I would finish a chapter, I would go over and read it to him. And my mother asked me, she said, please don't read disturbing chapters mm-hmm. to him because mm-hmm. it just, he wakes up at night and it's its on his mind. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for, for Dad, it was just the way he dealt with it.
2: Did your father go back to China after that? Never.
1: <gasps>
2: Even when you were there?
1: Even when I was there, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mother got as far as Hong Kong but she never went to China. Uh, my kids, uh, my husband had no choice. <laughs> 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 they were three and five, my kids, when we when took off for China. So, Where were you posted? Beijing? Beijing. You know where the friendship store is? Uh-huh. Qi Jiayuan? Is, is, is your husband
2: uh, a journalist also?
1: AP, former AP. Now he's with Men's Health Magazine. He's been there for 20 years. But back when we left for China, he quit AP and was working for the embassy doing like contract work. Do you remember the magazine Jiallio? Yeah. Yeah. He, he was an editor of that for uh, two first. years. Yeah. <laughs> This is such a great crowd because I don't have to explain. So, did you go back and read your grandfather's letters? Oh, and, yeah.
2: and did you learn anything differently? Were there any messages he was trying to get out, or was it yeah, all um, sweetness and light? Um,
1: do any of you know China Source? It's a website. Uh, they recently did three questions with me, and I mentioned to Joan Pittman, the the editor of that. Um, you know, I deconstructed his right, I'm sure you did. his letters. Uh, you know, if you look at my printout. Well, the
0: stop sending money was certainly yeah. a message.
1: I mean, I, I had to read it with fresh eyes. You yes, know, of course. and like, what was he trying to tell us, or what right. was he not trying to tell us? And I made a point in the book, if I can find the picture, of writing about um, this photograph. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's 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 my grandfather in his anglican robes and holding a bible Mm -hmm. and if you buy the book you can go to page 278 and see it and it says you know christmas 1956 my grandfather was born on christmas that was his birthday and every year he'd like to get his picture taken Mm -hmm. so you know i've looked at that picture many times and it wasn't until after i had done all my research and wrote the book that i had this aha moment Mm -hmm. And it was 1956. And what you have to understand is 1956 was a year that his brother-in-law, Watchman Nee, was put on trial, was denounced on a daily basis in the newspaper, the Liberation Daily. There were constant, a barrage of articles denouncing him, you know, uh, a cartoon uh, you know, against him. My grandmother, uh, because she was a, close to her brother and a follower of his, you know, basically went into a depression and was kept, wouldn't leave, couldn't leave her bedroom. And my grandfather, by 1956, had been shunted aside in the, Anglic- in the, you know, the hierarchy of the Protestant church in China, probably because a lot of reasons, uh, but one of them was his brother-in-law was Watchman knee and Watchman Nee was an enemy of the people. And it was this year of turmoil for the family where they were publicly ridiculed you know, Watchman Nee was sent away for 20 years, his wife was totally demoralized that that year, at Christmas time at the end of mm-hmm. this horrific year mm-hmm. he stands there in his full Anglican garb, holding a bible mm-hmm. now, and maybe I'm reading too much into it but it seems to me like he was smiling <laughs> slightly, yeah. so to me it's defiant right. and I'm still here yeah. yeah, it's like, in your face, I'm still here and so like, I, I want, when I give a talk to to writing classes in high school. I I tell people, you you have to read photographs, too. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot you can learn from just studying a photograph.
2: When your grandfather was detained in 1927, how long was he held? So
1: that was a day. It was a day he was captured and paraded through the streets.
2: Did Did he say anything about how the crowd reacted when he told them? Go ahead and kill me. On the well, he didn't, enough.
1: but but people wrote, wrote about it. About so it. So was, it. Yeah. yeah, so there there was. <laughs> but again, think, you know, I, I asked the question in the book, like, why didn't he tell anyone? Mm-hmm. And and I said, you know, at one talk, I said, you know, I would have been proud, mm-hmm. you know, that I I withstood this this, you know, this pressure, to renounce. Uh, I, I mean, to me, that would be a point of pride. Uh, so why why wouldn't you say anything? And and you know I said to the crowd, well maybe he was embarrassed, you know that he was humiliated. He had a dunce cap on his head, placard around his neck, his arms were were you know uh, tied with a rope. So maybe he was embarrassed. And actually there was a Chinese gentleman in this crowd who said, no, it's probably the opposite. He didn't want to see prideful. Yeah. So I don't know why, but for some reason he kept that quiet. And, uh, curiously, you know, my father was born a week after this happened, this event. Mm-hmm. So, well, I think he didn't want to get the up, as his wife upset. But why wouldn't he tell the kids growing up? I mean, well, you know...
0: He hadn't I, told his wife.
1: I think it's kind of... <laughs> well, and you
0: don't talk about
1: painful exactly, things, necessarily. necessarily. Exactly. I think it's like, uh, people who have fought through, like, World War II. Right. Like, you if you know, have you an know. uncle or, yeah. you know, right. they don't tell those stories. Right. No. So, yeah. uh, but again, you know, it... Thank goodness I found that sentence. (laughs) So anyway, thank you very much. If there's anyone else who wants to chat with me afterwards, I'm I'm here.
0: And we do have copies of the book for sale in the front. Thank Thank you very much. much. Thank you. Wonderful talk. (laughs)